Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Essentials, written by the world's leading sustainable builders, designers, and engineers, New Society Publishers' Sustainable Building Essentials series covers the full range of natural and green building techniques with a focus on sustainable materials and methods and code compliance. From rainwater harvesting to composting toilets to straw bale, rammed earth, hempcrete, and more, these unique books present the essential information on each topic. Find out more about the Sustainable Building Essentials series at NewSociety.com. Until getting to know Daniel and his understanding of building design and healthy living, I wasn't sure that I wanted to do an episode on Aircrete. I've focused only on natural building techniques and materials up until this point because I honestly believe that nature provides all the materials we need to build high quality and healthy structures. But since Daniel comes from the perspective of natural building experience, and because I like to remain open to new ideas and not become too much of a purist or a zealot for one way of seeing things, I spoke to him about his increasingly popular way of building. In this episode, Daniel explains what aircrete is and how it differs from traditional concrete. He walks me through the necessary tools and materials, all the way to pouring forms, bricks, mortars, and final coverings. We talk about the advantages and disadvantages, not only of the construction process, but also of using industrial materials over natural ones, and why someone might choose to throw up a quick and durable industrial structure as a stepping stone towards a longer vision for a regenerative lifestyle. Just as importantly, Daniel and I go back and forth over the complex issues around the consumption and waste associated with different building methods, and also the fact that a regenerative life is different for every person and every place based on their unique context. I really enjoyed this discussion and exploring some difficult concepts with Daniel, but even more, I would love to hear from you. Yes, you, about what your personal lines of acceptability in building materials and industrial processes are, and what your own definition of regenerative living is. What are the hard lines that you draw, if any? And what are the permissible consumptions or waste that you feel all right with given that the world we live in demands it? You can leave a comment below the show notes on the website at AbundantEdge.com or email me directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. With that said, I'll turn things over now to Daniel. Hey, Daniel, thanks so much for making time to be with me today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you reaching out. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today about Aircrete. So what do you say we just jump right in? Oh, absolutely. So I guess I'll start with what Aircrete is, right? Sure. Actually, before we do that, actually, if you could give us a, a little about your personal background and what interested you oh. in construction to begin with and what got you interested in Aircrete eventually. Okay. Well, I kind of uh, grew up uh, around construction most of my life. And in one form or another, I've been involved in construction uh, for over 30 years. And Aircrete is something that just kind of surfaced uh, as an alternative building method when I was uh, you know, I've built everything. Uh, I've rammed earth. Uh, I've, I've packed cob. I've done waddle and daub. 
And um, for a situation coming up in my life, it just happens to be that this was a super convenient answer that one person can take out into the middle of absolutely nowhere and slap together. Okay. So like we were doing before, let's start by talking about what it is and how it differs from what people already know about concrete itself. Right. Aircrete is not cement. Aircrete is just Portland. Um, you know, technically cement is the combination of Portland cement and sand and gravel. But the difference with Aircrete is that we entrain air into the actual Portland cement. We inflate it six times its normal volume, and this creates an insulating um, structural product. So it's both structure and insulation. It's not as strong as cement, but it's uh, compressively, uh, it's just as strong as a two by four wall uh, or any thickness of wall on 24 inch centers. So that's so, pretty so much- So it's like a rigid foam held together with the same cement that would make up concrete, but without the heavy added material of sand and gravel. Exactly, and a lot of air, which makes it light. Sure. All right, so walk me through the process. Uh, what kind of equipment do you need? And how long does it take to make a mix like this? What are the different ingredients? All right. Well, the, uh, the primary ingredient, of course, is just a bag of Portland cement uh, and water. Uh, typically, you'll add about five gallons of water to an entire bag of Portland cement. And then uh, you'll do this, you know, I like to have a barrel with a pivot on it so I can eliminate any lifting when at all possible. And you just use an eight amp or stronger drill and a good three uh, blade flat spiral mixer. And you turn your foam on and the foam is, uh, you know, it can be at soap bubbles. Um, but honestly, some kind of foaming agent like um, Drexel foam uh, is a lot stronger, works better. And so you have another five gallons of water that is a dilution of uh, your foaming agent and water. And you turn on a pump and you pump this into the bottom of your mixing container um, and you run your drill until it has inflated itself to a mark on your mixing container that equals about six cubic feet. Wow. Okay. So, and this is all contained in what size of a bucket that you're doing this? Well, for a single 92 pound bag of Portland cement, we use a uh, 50 gallon drum and a uh, 30 inch mixing blade, which works out to just about six cubic feet by the time the cement gets into the drill. Gotcha. And what kind of chemicals are the foaming agents made up of? Are there different options or like the one you mentioned that was ideal? Is that, that really what you recommend? Yeah, I really recommend the Drexel foam. Um, you, you know, people like the idea of using something like seventh generation and certainly, um, I could support uh, the idea of supporting a company that's trying to do the, the right thing. And, but Drexel is actually, it's made out of uh, proteins uh, from animals <laughs> apparently. Okay. Um, but, and it's a byproduct of the existing uh, slaughter industry, which is not a beautiful topic, but it's, it's non-toxic in other words. Gotcha. So you've got non-vegan walls, but it's not a toxic product <laughs> either. <laughs> Exactly. All right. So give me an idea of what the construction process looks like. Once you've mixed your foam up in this uh, 55 gallon barrel um, and you said you've got it on a pivot to avoid having to lift anything, where are you pouring this in? How are you forming it into a wall structure? 
Well, you know, if you're building something like a dome or you want blocks to stack, then you'll have a block form, a mold sitting right there beside you. And you'll just simply pour it into this mold. And uh, when you're done mixing and pouring, you uh, insert metal or even uh, plastic dividers and uh, you wait 24 hours. And at the end of that 24 hours, you pull your blocks out of your mold. And uh, right then, even though they're still somewhat brittle, uh, you can pick them up and begin construction with them right then. And that is the more laborious method because then you have to mortar these blocks back together. And that's not with regular mortar. That would be with an aircrete mortar. And then there's the option to build a cast structure. And it can be rectangular. Um, it can be uh, circular. Uh, it can be almost any shape as long as you can create a mold to contain uh, your aircrete in until it sets. And that casting method is my preferred method because it's just so fast and it takes out so much of the time and the labor. Okay, so I guess it depends on the design and the form of your building, which one might have advantages. Because, you know, I've heard you mention that this is a really good material to take out into the middle of nowhere and be able to construct with a minimal amount of materials. But if you have to put together some complicated form work, that's going to up the labor and the difficulty of the build. Oh, absolutely. Uh, obviously, blocks are the most simplistic way that you can build. And it's, you know, there's huge industries around using blocks. And a lot of your common hired labor, of course, already knows how to work with blocks. So it lends itself to simplicity. Sure. Now, you mentioned, too, that there's an aircrete mortar that needs to be used when assembling the blocks. Is that a different mixture, or are you really just uh, taking what you would normally put into the forms and using that as your mortar? Yeah, for the mortar, um, it's basically the same thing, except you're adding a product, which is typically latex or acrylic bonding agent. And the reason you put this in the mix is you want it to really stick uh, to the blocks it's a, it's a more thin mix than standard mortar. And, um, so you don't want, uh, you don't want something that's just going to run out and you don't want something that's not going to fully bond your block to, to create a weak spot in your construction later. Sure. Are there any risks of maybe the entrance of impurities either in your foaming agent or during the process that could compromise the foaming ability of the material and cause it to deflate before it cures? Well, generally, the most common thing is if it's deflating, there's been too much water added to the mix, and you just simply mm. have to reduce the amount of water. Um, generally, your foam is going to work unless, of course, you don't have enough of your foaming agent. Uh, for example, if you're using a five-gallon bucket for your foaming agent, you have to put an entire 16-ounce bottle of soap into that. And so if you run short on soap, then the bubbles will pop. Um, and the idea behind the bubble is not to really hold the structure except as long as necessary to entrain it into the cement. It's actually the thickness or viscosity of the cement that holds the bubble in place. So the bubble is just there long enough to get the bubble mixed into the cement. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, you mentioned that the bricks or the formwork would be workable uh, within 24 hours, but uh, cement takes a longer period of time to cure. So how long would you recommend before putting any kind of load or stress on those blocks or those uh, or the casts or the molds, I suppose, um, before it can really take the amount of pressure that it was designed to? 
Well, it reaches full design strength in about 28, 30 days. And of course that depends upon temperature, obviously. Um, you can accelerate that by adding hot water to the mix. Um, but generally, you know, in 24 hours, you can pick up the blocks, you can move them, you can go ahead and build a building with them. But obviously uh, you have to avoid striking them or dropping them or anything that could put a micro fracture or a crack that's gonna show up as a break uh, after the block matures. Hmm. And once it's fully cured, do you have an idea of how much PSI uh, it can withstand? Yeah, um, with the equipment that I have, um, my scale tops out, but I'm consistently getting over 168 pounds per square inch. Okay, that's a good so, reference point to get an idea of how much of a like roof heft you can put on it. Um, well, yeah, go ahead. Right. Go, if you think about snow load and you know how much weight that is, and then you look at how much cement, for example, a, a 450 square foot single bedroom, small or tiny house, um, the whole thing soaking wet, if that were even possible to get it immediately out of the barrel and stack it up, uh, is somewhere around 53,000 pounds. And when you actually divide that out over the thickness of a wall that's six or eight inches thick, it actually winds up being under 11 pounds per square inch. So there's actually this tremendous safety margin between what it's capable of withstanding uh, versus what is actually put on the structure. Hmm. Okay. And now I know, especially in the case of the domes, you recommend then giving a stucco layer on the entire outer portion of, of one of these like bubble forms. And I think a lot of people who are familiar with Aircrete in any way have usually seen these types of images. I feel like this is how it's gotten, um, it's, it's become best known. I know I first learned about it when I saw some of those forms at a construction site in Thailand, I believe it was. And so covering it then with, with stucco, this is not still the same aircrete mixture. This is a proper cement, uh, sorry, concrete stucco, correct? Yeah, um, correct. First of all, it's, um, you know, aircrete has a great amount of compressive strength, relatively speaking, but it has very little tensile strength. So, you know, if you, if you put a lot, if you stood it, uh, put it on two blocks, for example, and apply pressure in the middle, uh, it's going to pull apart. And uh, the way you uh, strengthen that is with a reinforcing fabric. And this fabric is applied to the exterior with a regular cement mixture that's fairly high uh, in acrylic or latex. Uh, and that is used to bond the outside. So it's like a more conventional stucco mix. You apply it to the exterior, you lay on your fabric, and then you work this through the fabric, and then you apply a finished coat to the top of the fabric. And, okay. uh, you know, ac acrylic stuccos uh, are great if you want to put a second final finish on there. Um, you can just paint it, but um, obviously, because it's a porous cement structure, it can absorb water, and it is important to seal it from the elements. Have you experimented with other types of sealants other than cement stucco? Um, because it seems to me that while the ease and the transportability of the equipment and the materials to make something like this, potentially in a remote region, would be somewhat undercut by the amount of s sand or gravel, I guess gravel not so much for the stucco, but sand that you would have to either import or excavate on site in order to do that final layer. 
Yeah, we've actually in Mexico, we started using uh, just a um, it's a uh, what's the word elastomer type brick and stucco paint. So it's literally just uh, a can of paint that can be applied to seal it and it, it works very successfully. And it's just maybe, you know, it would require a little more maintenance in the long run. You know, you need to repaint your structure every few years, whereas something like an acrylic stucco uh, is going to really maintain that seal for a longer period of time. Sure. Yeah, I know that the, the few problems that I've had and I've seen when I worked in the industrial construction trades was more that, you know, given the brittleness of a cement stucco, it can have, even if you're not able to see it very easily, sort of micro cracks in it that allow moisture through. And I would imagine in the case of putting on a dome like that, that could be a risk that could compromise the structure. Have you come up against any issues like that? Well, I haven't so far, um, because when you put that finished coat and that fabric on there, uh, it's generally waterproof and it's not going to crack through that fabric and the layer underneath the fabric is generally water resistant. I'm not going to say waterproof, but you know, I've never seen an instance where water was able to soak into a wall. Gotcha. Now you've worked with a whole bunch of different types of designs. I've seen on your website, especially the domes or sort of bubble forms that we talked about, but you said you also really like to work with form work. What are some of your favorite designs or that you especially advocate for people who are getting started with this material? Well, you know, you can do rectangular forms, but I just happen to really love the circular form. Um, and so that cylinder shape is, is the one I prefer because you can buy that cheap utility grade plywood. Um, you can slap it together and, and the very nature of the shape itself, it's almost like when you roll up a sheet of paper, it becomes strong enough that you could put a cup of coffee on top of a sheet of paper. Uh, the shape itself uh, holds the form in place. And with very little effort, you can put up a form that doesn't cost a lot. And one person could bucket this in. For example, if you were building a small 16 foot cabin, um, you can actually make it livable uh, in 14 days because it only takes six, seven days to get the wall up. And that's if you're by yourself and if you, you know, stick to it and, and get the work done. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, those types of statistics are really promising for people who are working with limited resources or don't necessarily have help available to get a project like this done. Oftentimes just getting moved into a spot, even if it doesn't happen to be your final finished building uh, on the land can make the difference between continuing to pay rent somewhere else and having the ability to save extra money and put on the time on the site that you need to build something more, more substantial in the longer run. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. Because um, sometimes if you can get out of paying rent, for example, if you're just starting, that's the quickest way to really move forward on the project. And, you know, sometimes I come up against this all or nothing thinking that people have and, you know, it's like, well, I've got to have my mansion in every detail right now. But if you take more of the attitude that the original settlers of this country had, then you start with what's necessary. And maybe that little initial structure that gets you on the land immediately, maybe that becomes your closet or your bathroom later, or maybe it's not even attached to the house. Maybe it's a storage building, you know? So yeah, it, it absolutely lends itself to a quick project that can put you in something. And it's not like a tent or a yurt. Uh, that really does leave you uncomfortable. These structures are very comfortable. I, my favorite part about taking on sort of a smaller project like that is that 
a lot of the people who are attempting this for the first time either don't have a lot of extra, construction experience or I guess even in the other case of not being having any um, familiarity with living in kind of compromised situations like that where they don't have the, the luxuries that they're used to or, you know, the plumbing and the conveniences. And certainly in my experience, even just living in tents sometimes, you realize how little you actually need to be healthy and to be happy. And the few things that you really miss, you will make a priority when you make another building or design another structure for the longer term. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, in my opinion, a great thing to experience because like you said, you begin to realize what you can do without and then what you really need. And the, and sometimes that's, you just, you distill it down to the essence of what it is that you need and you can make mistakes on a small project and it's, it's not a deal breaker. It's, it's no, no problem. For sure. And you mentioned that this has insulative properties, and that's often one of the things that especially natural builders come up against, that there are few options for insulating a building if you go purely natural structures. Do you have the, the stats on the R value um, per inch of aircrete? Well, I don't have an exact R value. You can do it calculating uh, but what I do is actually measure. I just put a video out on YouTube on how to do this and, uh, you can actually raise or lower the temperature of a structure and measure it. And what I'm finding is that it's consistently slightly less than a standard fiberglass insulation. And, you know, per square foot, uh, you know, it takes an additional six and a quarter percent of insulation to achieve the same value. So the walls need to be a little thicker, you know, if you're depending upon a certain R value, like, you know, two by fours R11 or R13 for a two by six wall, then maybe instead of doing a six inch wall, you push it out seven uh, to eight inches to have an equivalent amount of insulation. Gotcha. And let's talk a little bit more about the compromises that we're dealing with, with using cement as a building material. I mean, you and I went back and forth by email for a little while, and I was tentative to promote the idea of aircrete on this podcast because in the past, I've really focused just on natural materials. But I know you've got experience working with other natural materials in contrast. So how does this stack up in your opinion to natural or more locally produced or less processed materials um, as far as sort of ease of use and construction and impact on the environment through the process and the manufacturing. Okay. Um, you know, first of all, it depends upon your environment, whatever you do, whatever you build, it really needs to be appropriate for where you're at. You know, um, if you're in the tropics, uh, you don't necessarily need walls, but if you're in the Northeast, you have driving rains and cold, you need walls. And in a similar manner, um, whenever you're choosing alternative building, in the majority of the climates, we, if we're designing to be a passive system, you really need insulation and thermal mass. And aircrete, of course, is structural and it provides insulation as well. And with insulation, uh, you, you can provide an active source of cooling or uh, you can design it to be more passive uh, through using windows to absorb the heat. But it's not... Um, you know, it is different. It does produce a great deal more pollution. Natural materials are very nice and forgiving. 
but on the flip side of that is the amount of labor and time it can take you because typically a lot of natural building requires excavation of quite a lot of material. And uh, if you're doing that by shovel, it's absolutely backbreaking, miserable work. Um, or you have to rent a, a large excavator or something to do the work for you, or you need a great deal of hands present whenever you do your project to get it done. So again, like I said in the beginning, aircrete is kind of a convenience uh, thing in terms of speed. Um, you know, if you're paying someone to build alternatively, uh, it often costs a substantial amount more than conventional construction even. That is true. Uh, so, you know, you have to look at your situation, decide what's appropriate for you. Now, you know, as far as aircrete and, and what it does to the environment, it's obviously not as environmentally friendly. It's made from limestone. This limestone has to be heated. Uh, when you heat limestone, you drive off carbon dioxide, not to mention the energy used in the manufacture and transport of this uh, limestone that becomes our cement. But basically for every 2,205 pounds of Portland cement that's produced, there's 2,044 pounds of carbon dioxide that goes into the air in that production process. You know, if you're just looking strictly at a CO2 uh, perspective. And so to help get an idea of what that means, if you were to build that one bedroom, 450 square foot dome, uh, you would need about 26,200 pounds of cement. And that would off-gas into the environment about 24,286 pounds of CO2. Yeah, and it's not insignificant. Now, to me, the compromise with that always is like, yeah, building with industrial materials can go a lot faster, but it's because a lot of the processing and a lot of the manufacturing has been pre-done for you to make it easy at the point of construction. Whereas... Right. Because of all of that processing not being the case, if you're excavating your materials by hand, if you're felling and shaping wood on your own, you're doing the processing there on site. And because chances are you're using less machinery to do it, the efficiency goes down, but you tend to be paying the money to a person rather than to a corporation and an industrial process. And I'm not saying that there aren't you know, mitigating reasons for both sides, but those were always kind of how I did the calculations for myself and explained it to clients. Now, I guess the, the pitfall for me when it comes to industrial materials, especially ones that are lower in price, um, that doesn't reflect the entire process and are easier to assemble, is just a matter of like, which industry are you paying, right? <laughs> are you paying the industry that, you know, does all of these things through mechanical processes, large mining, everything that you just mentioned with the CO2 embedded in it and the transport um, there. And in facilitating the ease for the user or the constructor, um, the person constructing the building, the risk for me is then that people are going to start slapping up aircrete buildings or concrete structures or, you know, whatever plastic or <laughs> petroleum-based composite comes out next. Um, not thinking through the entire lifespan of the building. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the lifespan of this product weathering over time? Can it be uh, like, does it last as long as cement the way that we think of traditionally, or does it kind of degrade and spall because it doesn't have the same structural integrity over time? I've never observed any uh, degrading of the material. It's my belief that it can be a multi-generational house. 
And a lot of it, and this would of course apply to any structure, but you know, if you were to take your gray water and uh, plant just 13 trees beside your structure, you would in 40 years zero the carbon footprint of the structure. And um, assuming a very small size of the structure or, or what kind of structure are we talking about? Well, as an example, a little one small bedroom, 450 square foot uh, dome. Gotcha. Um, and Just course, for reference. I'm, right. You obviously have to would want to plant more trees if you're building a bigger structure. And of course, you know, therein lies part of the American attitude. You know, we, we want to have a, a, a 2,500 square foot house for a single person who's always at work and never home. Yeah. And so, so, you know, you can, I, I believe you can be responsible with it. And yes, I, it's, it's a big deal to go out and strip mine a mountain range or something for limestone uh, as opposed to excavating local materials. And it's definitely nice to actually put the money in the hands of, of, of a person instead of a soulless corporation. But, you know, as far as offsetting the carbon footprint, you can do that. The shade from the trees, you know, electricity usage, you know, actually the, the cost of ownership of a home is often living in the home more than the home itself. And it even holds true for the CO2. You know, for each kilowatt of electricity you produce, it, there's something like 1.4 pounds of CO2 release. So over that same 40 year period, if you're uh, using electricity like the average American, um, that's nearly 600,000 pounds of CO2 because you're using electricity from the grid. Um, or if you're driving to work, you know, over that same period of, of time for what average American over that 40 years, you'd produce 2 million pounds of carbon dioxide driving. So, yeah. And ultimately that's why I was really looking forward to this conversation because though I'm not entirely convinced that aircrete is sort of the solution compared to natural buildings, it does offer a much more positive alternative to conventional, I guess, industrial and highly destructive construction and is perhaps a stepping stone towards a better way of building. But also because I have read some of your articles and heard some of your talks, not only on other podcasts, but in your videos. And I can tell that you've thought through more of the process of regardless of the, the material itself, kind of how we live and design with our homes is the bigger issue. Because, I mean, you know, having worked with natural materials in the past, you can design a consumptive building with natural materials. You can still live a consumptive lifestyle, a wasteful lifestyle, even if you kind of, you know, invest in sustainable or regenerative technologies and and green this and that, you know, it, it has much more to do with the decisions that you make on a daily basis and how or where you're sourcing your resources that you depend on uh, at a regular time. And from the designs and, and especially the integration of things like appropriate technology, which you've mentioned in, in other articles, you can kind of offset this smaller building cost through yeah, through the decisions and the infrastructure that you put in and around it. So can you talk about some of the other features that you would advocate for integrating in with an air crate building? Absolutely. Um, you know, talking about the amount of CO2 and energy used, um, honestly, um, you know, there's all this great alternative stuff out there. You probably have heard of cool tubes where you bury pipes in the ground and, and they create cooling for your house. Sure. And Yeah. And so, you know, it sounds like such a great idea, but 
then you actually put the energy cost into it to make that effective, to move enough air through a system like that. You wind up using enough energy that it's the equivalent to using something like a ground source heat pump. Mm. Uh, with one, you're at the mercy of what the environment gives you. And if you live in an environment where it's consistently hot, you may not be cool enough, uh, certainly by the end of the summer. Um, and then you've got the issue of a system that grows mold that you can't clean. And, mm. um, you know, society, as you're talking about it, we've got all this prepackaged stuff and it's the very lifestyles that we live and the value that we place on things that I think may be the core issue. For example, um, I could go out on my property and just using the small trees and sticks and limbs, I could build a double walled wattle and daub house. Um, maybe I put a liner in the bottom for waterproofing and then I fill it with uh, straw to give me an R32 insulating house that's built, you know, 99% free from local on-site materials. But the way society is structured, it's so much more, quote, valuable to use my time to just go buy a truckload of clay and a truckload of sand and, and some timber and a saw, cut it up, and then assemble an artificial structure out of natural materials. And sure. Yeah, so, you know, there's always that struggle with their – um, cause like you said, you can make an alternative building. It can be as industrial and more costly, uh, and more harmful even than buying something from uh, a larger source. So, you know, it's kind of like that permaculture saying it depends, right? You know, you Oh, it always to- depends. Yeah. And if, if someone has a bottled answer for you, you can almost bet yourself that it's going to be wrong because if you're not taking in considerations of the context, the place, the lifestyle, all of those factors, it's not really going to be a solution that works for those things. And I do appreciate that aspect, that uh, perspective that you bring to this. And I certainly don't consider myself to be such a purist. I mean, even as a natural builder myself, uh, I've worked in industrial building trades and I don't think I've, I don't know of anybody who's built an entirely natural building. I mean, you're still using screws and nails at the very least. And if you want electricity and plumbing, good luck trying to find natural materials that'll achieve those types of things for you. I mean, we just live a lifestyle and in a world that requires a certain amount of industrial inputs in order to interact with it the way that it was designed. And so a certain amount of compromise and hybridizing of traditional skills, natural materials, and the context of the modern world has to happen. And I think that this is a very important conversation to have when you get to the point of designing for context in place. And before I forget it, though, because we are kind of going deeper into the philosophy of the building and the living environments that we create for ourselves, you talked a bit about how you really like the rounded and the dome design. And certainly this isn't unique just to aircrete, but I've seen it a lot in like um, earth bag construction or sometimes called super adobe. And it can be achieved with a number of different types of materials. The one thing that I've personally always found, and I've had a lot of clients come to me like because people get really enamored with this kind of curvy, organic or circular shape in the design of their homes. But it can be really hard to furnish, to add the types of things that we're used to, you know, everything from tables and chairs to washing machines. Or, I mean, they're all built for rectilinear design. How have you kind of overcome that or worked it out within your own buildings or do you just simply make everything custom? 
Well, you know, things like cabinets against the wall, they're going to have to be custom, but we have to deal with the mindset too. You know, we've often grown up in sticks box houses, our furniture square. So we shove it to the walls and we walk through the middle of the room. But if you actually stop and think about it a little differently, and instead of trying to do the same thing with a different shape, instead of shoving the square peg in the round hole, you can put your furniture in the middle facing outwards and let the outer rounded edges be the walkways and the pathways. So it just requires a little different, um, layout and thought process and it's actually pretty amazing how roomy the structure can feel and how you can kind of avoid a lot of those issues by just simply not packing everything around the edge because it's not a box and it is curved so you know obviously things like appliances and stoves and they're just going to come off the shelf the way they are unless you're going to build a a rocket uh, cob <laughs> indoor stove and and heater then um you do have but to you make definitely should those things are super cool <laughs> but anyway yeah no but um i agree with all of that except for one part when it comes to domes I, like i'm not crazy tall but i'm six foot and if I'm walking around the edge of a dome and it starts to curve in, I've often found that really uncomfortable. And though I, I'm totally on board with the, like, I love a, a curvilinear or sort of more organic form for interior shapes. I really agree that it, like, it can feel a lot more roomy and um, certainly a lot more comforting than boxy and, and hard shapes and, and, you know, sharp lines and such. But uh, certainly I would, I would recommend for people who are a little bit taller to consider like how you're going to move around in that space. Because if you've got a hunch or kind of bend as you're going around, it, like it's fun for a novelty, but if you're going to be doing that every day, cause I've definitely lived in those structures. Like it's, it's a point that you want to consider in the design. Oh, absolutely. You know, obviously with cylinders, it's not an issue now with domes, um, typically because it looks artistic and kind of nice, we actually raise the entire structure above the equator. Yeah. And I, I advocate using 3d software. And since it, if it's going to be your house, you decide how close you need to be to the wall. I, I say about a foot, uh, for my height, I want to be able to pretty much, or maybe six inches. I want to be able to walk up to the wall without hitting my head on the wall. So we'll either raise the entire structure and let it tuck under more like a sphere or we'll actually put it on a stem wall. But absolutely, you do need to be uh, aware of that issue because nobody wants to walk around having to lean their head to one side or bend over us. That would never be comfortable. <laughs> I've just smacked my head on too many things to not mention that when talking about the design process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so look, one of, like, to get back into sort of the theory and the, the concept of the design and the way that we live and such, I just finished actually having a conversation with April McGill, who's been on this podcast before and is going to be on, a, on an episode soon, maybe even before this one. And we kind of had come through a roundabout way to the conclusion that if you want to live as healthy as possible, you want to live as close to the outdoors as possible. And Certainly that is easier in certain climates than it is in others. Like you mentioned in tropical areas where you barely need walls, maybe just sort of like insect guards and, and nets in a lot of cases, if your roof overhangs are tall enough, what kind of environment does this aircrete like sort of allow for? I know that the insulation allows you then to live comfortably in a range of climates where the temperature swings are more extreme without having to import too much energy to do that in. 
but what are some of the design techniques within that that you would advocate for to allow for ventilation and make sure that you're still letting nature into the space? Um, yeah, I really like, uh, first of all, good light. And I'm a really fan of, a big fan of these uh, polished aluminum tubes. They don't let a lot of heat in, but man, they really bring a lot of light in. And air quality is very important. Um, these domes, uh, it's not like normal houses and, and fiberglass. Uh, air does not blow through these walls. And so it's a very tight structure and it's absolutely necessary that you ventilate them properly. Otherwise you're gonna wind up with sweating walls and uh, uh, humid environment and just generally unhealthy. So um, what I really prefer in this example uh, is to install a, if you're in the South, you can install an energy recovery ventilator. If you're in the North, you need a heat recovery ventilator, but it's basically a box with an air heat exchanger and a fan. Uh, it doesn't pull much power at all, but it allows you to, to exchange the volume of the entire structure, you know, at least six times a day. That way the air stays fresh, mm. but it, it has the advantage of balancing the incoming and outgoing air temperature so that you're not just wasting energy. And, you know, you know, if it's a hundred outside, you don't want it to be a hundred inside. So you want to balance that air out without having to run your air conditioner more. And uh, it's, it's a good modern way to do that. If I wasn't going to do that, then yeah, I would probably put in a skylight that can be opened uh, and some lower windows in the direction of the prevailing breeze. And of course, that depends on your lifestyle. Again, if if, if you want to live open, uh, I really do like living outdoors, and I totally agree with the idea. In fact, um, I love the idea of having an outdoor kitchen, and when possible, doing the living outside, and then just retreating to a smaller living space when the weather's just not uh, uh, hospitable. Sure. Yeah, I've described this in the past uh, to clients and in some of my design workshops of like a gradient that you want to achieve where only the most essential functions like sleeping, in some cases eating and washing are fully enclosed inside of a building. Now, obviously, this is going to change in the climate or in the area that you're living in and how many months out of the year it's comfortable for you to actually uh, shift a lot of your functions into the outdoors. But then once the essentials are kind of taken up and, and you know, enough storage space to, to store your essentials as well, try and move as many of your daily tasks um, into various states of outdoors. So maybe one would be uh, like two or three walls encompassing an outdoor kitchen or a living room space. And from there on, perhaps a, a semi-translucent roof and maybe one or no walls just a stick frame around it all the way out into a point where it's like stippled shade and water can still get through, depending on the appropriateness of that design for your site. Have you worked with any designs like that, integrating aircrete or other natural materials into the finished product? Well, a lot of what I do right now is private workshops. We'll go out and teach people and they'll build their own houses. And with aircrete, I haven't had any real opportunity to do much more than create a nice trellised area uh, with a lot of plants growing on it and a water feature. That way you have a nice, cool living space. And, you know, that way your living area is generally outside uh, most of the time. Um, in other alternative uh, structures, I've, you know, I've worked with earth ships. And so obviously, you know, you've got the, the interior wall, you've got the greenhouse area, you've got an exterior wall. Um, those work great in so many climates uh, in, in New Mexico where they build them. Of course, you know, it may be 113 during the day, but then it's also 53 at night. So it works perfect. 
Um, in my climate, um, you know, we've built one structure where, uh, we have an outdoor kitchen, you know, it, it was a more conventional, uh, rammed earth house with foam insulation on it, but we have a nice big outdoor kitchen, uh, that's designed, uh, the shrubbery goes out in a V or it opens up into the prevailing breeze. So it literally focuses the wind down on the area where you're going to be standing. It, it creates a natural breezeway that's very comfortable. Uh, and then we have vines on the top and they do most of their cooking out there, uh, except whenever the weather's not good. So yeah, I've had, uh, the, the opportunity to do that on a couple of occasions, just one with air Crete. Nice. Well, it seems to me like this is kind of an infinitely moldable tool, easy to work with, especially for people without technical uh, experience and a lot of skills and, you know, though I have some hangups about the material itself, I am very curious to see how this develops because it's only been a few years since I even really saw this come out on the scene. And it's really exploded in popularity, even to the point where a couple of my natural builder friends are getting involved with uh, aircrete builds and advocating for it through their clients too, just because of the ease and the quickness of the builds. Um, I really appreciate you coming and sharing some of your perspective and experience on this, as well as some good hard information. I know you have a whole lot more that you could share with us, but it's very well covered in your videos and on your website. So uh, before I let you go, can you direct our listeners to where they can learn more and get in touch with you? Absolutely. Uh, you can find me at the tinygiantlife.biz. Um, there's links to most everything there. We do workshops. We sell a, uh, online video course. If you need a little extra something, um, of course we have a YouTube channel, uh, the tiny giant lifestyle, and it's intended to be more about lifestyle design than air Crete specifically, but air Crete seems to be, uh, gaining quite a bit of interest. And, um, there's all the information about pretty much anything you would need to know for free in there. You just kind of have to dig through the videos and, and uh, you'll find it. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing such a, a well thought out perspective um, from experiences of both industrial and natural building. I hope that we can catch up again and I'd love to hear more as things develop and new design ideas come through. And uh, this has been really cool. So thank you so much for your time. Well, I thank you for having me and you have yourself a great evening. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.